right. Ooh, I'm a little loud. Um, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. So, welcome to week number three in our series uh, going through Romans chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 2. Um, so go ahead, if you have a Bible, open it up to Romans chapter 12. If you do not have a Bible uh, that you brought, or maybe your Bible's a little hard to understand, uh, there are blue Bibles that are under the seats that you can uh, use, little blue uh, paperback ones, and you can use those. If you don't know how to get to Romans, your Bible or the blue Bible will have a table of contents at the beginning that you can use to get yourself to Romans, and then you can find chapter 12 there. So... Um, uh, there's a few people here that I see that uh, have maybe not been here for this full series. It's a really short series, and so I want to make sure you kind of have some context for where we're at, what we're doing, what we're talking about uh, in, in these verses that we're going through right now. So uh, the whole purpose and reason that we are looking at Romans 12, 1 and 2 is because there is a kind of religion in our area, here in Bullock County, there's a kind of religion that says your faith only affects your life after you die. And that it has no effect, it has no say on what happens to your life as you're living it in the here and the now while you're alive. It treats religion and it treats faith as like a life insurance policy. You know, your life insurance policy, if you have one, does not kick in unless you die. And that's how people treat their faith. Romans 12, 1 and 2 directly contradicts that kind of thinking. It, and it keeps us from thinking that our faith is only about something that happens after we die. And it says, no, it actually has a transformative effect on how you live and why you live. And so we've been taking our time going through Romans 12, 1 and 2. And so uh, let's, let's read those two verses and then we'll dive in to what we're looking at today. Chapter, chapter 12, verse 1. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God... To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And before we dive into this, I want to pray just one last time for you. Father, there are many things that you place on my mind in reading through these verses and as meditating on them, thinking on them. Lord, so many things. Father, my prayer today is that what is actually said would be of the maximum benefit to those here. Father, I pray that as we ask of your word what it means to be transformed and to have our minds renewed. Lord, I pray that you would keep those here from falling into despair and into condemnation. God, that you would guard their hearts from a sense of guilt that cannot be removed. But Lord, I pray that instead, as they see the greatness of their sin, that the mercy that you have shown us in Christ would become all the more glorious and all the more real to them, Lord. And that that would produce in us a love and an affection for Christ 
and it wants nothing but more of him. God, would you guard us against a sense of freedom that is not actually freedom? God, would you guard us against a thought that we are able to live however we want because you've shown us grace and because you've shown us mercy? Father, help us see our freedom. God, we long for the day when we will be ransomed with all the church of God to sin no more. And we will not only be removed from the power of sin, Lord, but also the presence of it, the influence of it in our lives. God, give us a vision of glory, of what it would be like to live with you. Lord, be with me. Give my words clarity. Empower me with your spirit to speak your word to your people so that they will worship you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. So in the previous weeks that we've looked at this passage and we've come to it, we've seen two things. First, we saw that you can summarize the gospel by saying that it is, first and foremost, the mercy of God that is offered to you, a sinner. Second, when what we looked at last week, we examined the phrase that as receiving the mercy of God, you are now to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. We asked, what does that mean and how do I do it? And the idea of presenting your body as a living sacrifice is the idea of presenting your living self, the life that you live, in service to God for the glory of God to be spread using your spiritual gifts and using your life as a billboard of the character of God. That if God is primarily a God of mercy, we are to be a people primarily of mercy, displaying his mercy to others in this world. And so now what we're going to tackle is the phrase that starts verse 2 when he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. When he says world uh, in this verse, you got to understand that he's not just talking about a, this physical planet, Okay. It's not what he means. When you see the word world in Scripture, it means different things at different times. For, as an example, a couple weeks ago I referenced a famous verse, John 3.16, that goes like this. For God so loved the world. In that instance, the word world is referring to people. It's, it's us. God loved us, and so we are being referred to as the world. But this instance of the word world, when he says, do not be conformed to the world, it's not just people. He's not just saying, don't be conformed to other people. He's saying something as a characteristic about those people. He's making a moral judgment of those people. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, you don't need to turn there, I'm just referencing it. It says this, it says, put to death what is earthly in you. Okay, so it's not a noun that he uses earthly, it's an adjective. He's describing something. Earthly is a characteristic of something. It is earthly. Titus 2.12 makes it very clear what this moral judgment is. It says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. He compares ungodliness as a worldly passion. And so when he says world, he's making a moral judgment about where we are, about the air about us, not just the physical place. And if I had to nail it down, I would say that world in this sense, you could describe it as God's fallen creation that is characterized by a natural inclination to sin and rebel against God. That's the world. 
that God's creation has this natural inclination to sin and rebel against God. And he says here that we are not to be conformed to the world. That is not to be the normal pattern of our lives, which that was the normal pattern of our lives. If you are a believer in Christ, as we've talked about in previous weeks, that if you have placed your trust in Christ and you've received his mercy and you are now a new creation in Christ, this is talking about your former life, who you were. Conformity to the world, you could go to John, I'm sorry, 1 John. You don't need to turn there. If you want to, you can. The 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. And that shares with us a little bit about what conformity to the world is looks like. It says in verse 15, it says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and he names them, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. He breaks down following the course of this world, the things the world has to offer as these three things. He says the desires of your flesh, if something feels good, if you have a craving for something, by all means do it. That's what it means to conform to the world. The desires of the eyes, if something looks good, if I think that something's going to make me happy, then by all means pursue it as much as you want and make yourself happy. He says that it's the pride and possessions that you look for the things in your life that you own, that you feel like give you value, that give you pride, whether it's a big house, a nice shiny car, lots of toys, looking a certain way, filling your home with perfection and then trying to bring people into your home to look at this perfection and getting your pride and your joy in those things. That is the course of this world. <coughs> Ephesians 2 says it slightly differently. And I think it's helpful for us as we examine it. Ephesians 2, 1 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Listen to this. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. That's what it means to follow the course of this world, to, to be worldly. And he says, do not be conformed to this world. When we conform to this world, that puts us in a very dangerous spot, a very bad spot. James 4.4 4 says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Um... Let me just ask you a question, and you can raise your hand to this. I actually want you to respond as an audience. I'm going to poll the audience. Who has people in their life that they don't like very much? Okay, if you didn't raise your hand, that means that you never interact with people. You can put your hand down now. <laughs> She's like, I want to make sure I cover all of them. Yeah. As much as we all have people in our life that we probably don't like very much, you probably wouldn't describe many of them as your enemies. Because when you say that somebody is your enemy, you're making a moral judgment about that person that they're more on the side of evil. Like a, a movie that has an arch nemesis or an enemy, and this person is characterized by evil. That's probably why you wouldn't characterize your, the people in your life that you don't like very much 
as your enemy. They are not completely and totally opposed to me. And most of us probably would not consider ourselves to be enemies of God. But the Bible doesn't pull any punches when it comes to talking about our sin. It calls us enemies of God. It says that we hate God. We are his arch nemesis. What this world will try to teach you and what this world will try to tell you is this. People are basically good. And if there's anything that they do bad, it's not because of them. It's because of the circumstances of their life. So the world will try to explain why, they, why this generally good person did this, or they'll try to excuse it. They'll try to excuse it by saying, oh, they just made a mistake. They didn't mean to do that. It was just a mistake. It's really not that bad. Or in some instances, the world will even say their behavior in this instance is acceptable because of the circumstances surrounding their situation. Like you think of like a little kid on a, on a playground throwing mulch at another kid, and the kid's like, stop it, stop it, stop it. I'm going to get you if you keep throwing mulch at me. And all of a sudden, the kid actually gets up and punches the other kid in the face for throwing mulch at him. Most of us would probably say in that situation, well, the kid had it coming to him. We'd probably say that. That's not the Bible handles our sin, though. It doesn't handle it in that way. So it'll try to make or try to excuse this, but it'll also try to make explanations of the sin. They'll say that, oh man, they were, they were just misguided. They weren't taught the right thing, and they were misguided. Well, they'll say that the circumstances of their life led to this, the way their parents raised them, or, what, how, or how they experienced bullying in school led them to this kind of action, this kind of life. More and more, you'll find in our world that the world is actually trying to define any instance of wrongdoing as some kind of result of a mental disorder, of a mental illness. You take like the, the recent shootings, mass shootings, one of the first conversations you'll hear a reporter talk about or news try to cover is figure out, does this person have some kind of mental disorder? Are they like PTSD? Are they bipolar? Do they have schizophrenia? We try to boil down the problems and the sins of people's lives to some kind of mental disorder so that it is not their fault. Now, I want you to understand this very clearly. I'm not saying that there's no such thing as mental disorders. There are, and they affect people in real ways. But we can't boil down every sin to a mental disorder that's not this person's fault. The Bible doesn't allow us to do that. The Bible calls us enemies of God. Your sin, the common denominator in all instances of sin, you want to know what that is? You. Your rotten heart. I know that sounds like super in your face and hostile and like, whoa, calm down, Scott. You're getting a little too intense this morning. I know that sounds like that. But coming to terms with the sinfulness of sin allows us to see this next truth in its full glory. It's this. Romans chapter 5, verse 10 says, While we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. God didn't save a bunch of mistakers. He didn't save a bunch of people that made mistakes. He didn't save a bunch of people that were mentally ill. He didn't save a bunch of people that were just misguided and grew up in bad circumstances. God saved his own enemies, those that hate him and live in opposition to him. The greater our sin is, the greater his grace is. 
It wasn't that long ago that we, um, in our series that we were going through in Luke, in Luke 7, we looked at a passage of scripture of uh, Jesus eating at a Pharisee's house, and there is this sinful woman that came into the house, and, uh, and they're all eating together, and, uh, except for the woman. The woman is at Jesus' feet, crying at his feet, wetting his feet with her tears, wiping his feet off, cleaning his feet with her hair, and anointing him with expensive ointment. And the Pharisee that's there doesn't like this very much. And he says, "How he must know who this woman is and the sinful lifestyle that she lives. And Jesus responds to this Pharisee. He tells him a parable. We're not going to go into it. But at the end of the parable, Jesus says this, He who is forgiven little loves little. If your sin is a small thing in your eyes, guess what? The grace of God is also going to be a small thing in your eyes. It's not going to be valuable to you. It's not going to be important to you. You're not going to love God for who he is. Until you come to a place where you recognize that your mistakes are actually actions of a rebellious nature against your creator, you will never understand the mercy and the grace of God that has been offered to you. Before I move on to this and we move on from talking about conformity to the world and what it means to be transformed, I want to make one really quick point of application to this, okay? If somebody comes to you and tells you, that they have been throwing up for three days, they've had a fever that's like 105, they've even passed out a few times, they can't drink any water, they can't keep any food down, you're not doing that person any favors by telling them that they've just got a stomach bug and they're going to get over it. The thing to do in that instance is to point them to a doctor that can do something about their sickness. Affirm the fact that they are sick and point them to the one that can make them well. Somebody comes to you and they are broken over their sin. I'm talking like weeping, ugly cry. And they feel terrible about what they've done. It might be your child that will do this. They feel terrible about what they've done. You are doing them no favors by telling them that their sin actually isn't that bad, that it's going to be okay. It's not the end of the world that you did this. You're not doing them a favor when you do that. Reinforce the fact, yes, you have sinned, but let me tell you, there's a physician over here that can make you better. Point them to the grace of God. Don't downplay their sin. And so he says, do not be conformed to this world, following the patterns of sin that we once did. Instead, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The grace of God is that when we receive his mercy and his grace, when we place our faith in Christ, at that moment we are what's called justified. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. When you're justified, what it means is that all of the sin you are guilty of ever committing has been forgiven. It's been placed on Christ. He's paid the penalty. And now when God looks at you, he sees you as completely righteous before him. But... Just because you are seen as completely righteous before God and all of your sin that you've ever committed has been paid for, that does not mean that you will forever now be perfect. You are always going to have a struggle, we'll call it a struggle, with sin. There's still sin that's present in your life. If anybody here, when you got saved, stopped sinning completely, please tell me how you did it because I'd love to know. So the question then is this. Why do you not have to ask for forgiveness and why do you not have to get saved every single day of your life? It's because your justification, your standing before God did not just forgive the sin of all of your past, it forgives the sin that you are yet to commit in the future. That is the grace of God. That's the amazement of our justification before God. God didn't just save sinners who were previously his enemies. God saved sinners that are going to continue to sin. 
So now here's the question. That brings us to a logical conclusion then. The logical conclusion is, if that's the case, if God has forgiven all my sin in the future, why would I try to not sin? What's wrong with my sin? I've already been forgiven for it. Why not just let it happen? That would certainly make life a lot easier. Might make life a little bit more enjoyable even. Why wouldn't I just do that? Paul, as he's writing Romans, actually anticipates that question coming from the Romans when he's discussing justification. It happens in Romans chapter 6. So turn a few pages to the left to Romans chapter 6. I'm going to skip through this passage a little bit, but I'm going to make sure I tell you where I'm going with it. Verse 1. He says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now skip down to verse 5. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be, and listen to this word, enslaved to sin. For, no, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now go to verse 11. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The answer to the question of why wouldn't I just continue in my sin if God has already forgiven me for all of my future sin, Paul points to a truth about your salvation in Christ. And that truth is this, that the blood of Jesus does not just remove the penalty of sin, it removes the power of sin. The blood of Jesus does not just remove the penalty of sin, it removes the power of sin in your life. And it says that we are to consider ourselves dead to sin. We have been given new life. It says that you were captive to sin. You were enslaved to sin. Before you come to Christ, uh, I, would, I would really love if we had more time so that we could dive deeper into this and how it works because it's fascinating to track through the book of Romans and see how our, we, our minds are enslaved to sin because of the presence of sin in the world, but we don't have time to do that. But before you become a Christian, you are enslaved to sin. There is this battle going on where even if you know the thing to do, even if you know what's right, there is this, what's called the law of sin that holds you captive. And you, no matter what you try, no matter what you do, try to be released from this sin, you can't because you are captive to sin. You are enslaved to sin. This is demonstrated in Romans 7, verse 21. 721 says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. He wants to do what's right. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, making me, again, here's this word, captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And then that leads him in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I am captive, I am enslaved to my sin. What can I do? Who can deliver me from this? 
he answers that question in chapter 8, verse 1. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. What Romans 8 verses 1 through 3 reveal to us about our salvation is that just as much as your salvation was about Jesus rescuing you from the judgment of God, it was also about him liberating you from the law of sin and death in your life. You have been liberated. You've been set free. It's liberation from this binding enslavement that we have. And then... Paul goes somewhere that's slightly unexpected. We've been liberated now, so now what? He goes somewhere that's a little unexpected, so look at verse 4. And in this, just some context, so you know kind of where we're at in this. We're, We're getting to how is it that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. We're getting there, I promise. That's where we're going. Verse 4, he says, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And your Bible might have that as a capital S. It's because he's not just talking about like your spirit within you. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. God, the Spirit, being present. And it's we walk by the Spirit. The Spirit is present in us. When you become a Christian... You are forgiven for your sin, but then you are also at the same time indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And the Spirit does certain things for you. In our missional community, we talked uh, just several weeks ago, we talked about the Holy Spirit. Who is He and what does He do in our life? How does He help us? And He has specific functions. And one of them we're about to look at, and it's this. The Spirit helps us be set free from the power of sin in our life in an ongoing way. And so the question that we need to have or the connection that we need to make is this, is that what connection is there to the Holy Spirit and our transformation and our mind? There's like this triangle going on, like losing our sin, the Holy Spirit, the renewal of our minds. How does all this work together? How does all this fit together? That's what over the next several minutes I'm going to try to lay out and for us to understand in a clear way right now, okay? So uh, look at Romans 12, I'm sorry, not Romans 12, Romans 8, verse 12. He says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live, and so flesh here, by the way, it's kind of the same thing as uh, following the course of this world or being conformed to the image of the world. You remember when I referenced earlier that verse in Colossians are fleshly desires, worldly desires, right? So then, brothers, we are not debtors to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will what? You will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So there's a connection between the Spirit and putting to death the deeds of the body. And in Romans 12, 2, we see that there is a connection between the renewal of your mind and being transformed. 
So the question then is, well, what's the connection between the spirit and the mind? We see how both of those things have something to do with our transformation and our putting off our sin, but what's the connection between the spirit and the mind? So now you can look at Romans 8, verse 5. We're going all over the place here, but this is like a big puzzle that you've got to put together. This is fun. I think it's fun at least. In five, eight, chapter 8, verse 5, it says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. So enter the mind, your mind. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. There's the connection. The connection between the spirit and your mind is that you set your mind on the things of the spirit. That's what he means when he says in verse 13 that if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 helps us understand this in a, in a very clear way, that how we are to, by setting our mind on the things of the Spirit, we then are set free from the deeds of our body. We are then able to put to death the deeds of our body. So uh, 1 Corinthians is just a few pages over to the right, if you want to turn there. Uh, chapter 2, verse 14. He says this, The natural person, so natural person also is person that is following the course of this world, person that is conforming to this world. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. Nonsense. It doesn't make sense. It's not coherent. And he is not able to understand them. Why? Why can't a natural person not understand the things of God? Because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But here's the kicker. But we have the mind of Christ. So let's put this together. So, I don't know if you've seen it or not, but I have an amazing car. I love my car. Um, you didn't see me going there, did you? Uh, I have an amazing car. I love my little red car. Uh, it's a little red 2001 Toyota Corolla. Anybody ever driven like an old Corolla before? Maybe, who's had a Corolla older than that? 99? You must be old. Golly. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Got gotcha. you. No, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. I repent. Lord, forgive me. Um, so, so I have this... 2001 Toyota Corolla that I drive around. It's awesome. Gets good gas mileage, but it's got some things that honestly are a little embarrassing about it. So one of the most embarrassing things that happens to me is I'm driving down the road, turn the radio on, and I, I can't really hear my radio. Like there's, it's fuzzy. It kind of comes through a little bit, but it doesn't really work that great. And one day I finally figured out, I thought it was just a problem with my radio itself. Come to find out it's not really a problem with my radio. See, here's how radio signals work, okay? At least I think they work. There might be people out there that are like radio technicians. You're like, Scott, you're a moron. But this is at least what I think about how they work, okay? So 
The way a radio works is that there's a radio station with a tower, a big antenna, and from this antenna, it is sending out, or maybe even a satellite, I don't know, it's sending out this signal, and this signal goes to every vehicle. This signal's just out in the air. It's hitting each one of us right now. We're not hearing it, though, and it's going to my car, and I was able to pick up a little bit of it in my car by turning my radio on, but it's fuzzy. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. So one day, I discovered what I had to do. I was sitting in some traffic, and I, when I discovered what I had to do, this is the most embarrassing thing that happens to me, is that I've, I've, I've actually got, Glenn, you might know where I'm going with this, I've actually got to physically pull my antenna out of my car so that I can pick up a radio signal. So I'm in my car, sitting in a busy intersection, everybody around me, and here I am, rolling down my window, and yes, I'm doing this to roll down my window. Some of you younger people might not even know what that is. What? How does that roll down your window? I roll down my window and I literally reach on top of my car and pull out my antenna that's like this long. And everybody is looking at me like, what is that guy doing? But when I do that, my radio works. The signal is stronger and the same station that used to not come in will come in. Isn't that nuts? Wouldn't that be embarrassing for you to have to do that? I love my car. It's amazing. It's a blessing to my life. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of my vehicle. Without, without the antenna on my car, even though these radio signals are coming to my car and they're coming in faintly, I can't understand them. They're folly to me. The Holy Spirit dwelling in you works in the same way that the antenna on my car works. Without the antenna of the Holy Spirit, even though you are being hit by these truths about God, these messages about God, the things of the Holy Spirit, guess what? They're folly to you. Right now, I'm preaching. I'm talking about the things of God. But there are some of you in here that these things make no sense to you. And you have no clue what I'm talking about. It's because you don't have the antenna of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit present in our lives receives the truths about God and interprets them so that now we can understand them. We have the mind of Christ. These deep truths about God that are deep and glorious and amazing and will change our lives mean nothing if we, have the, if we don't have the Holy Spirit. So that's how all of this works in conjunction with together. Your mind is to be renewed because by the presence of the Holy Spirit, you can now receive truths about God that will make sense and that will change your life. You're to be transformed. And if you're going to put to death the deeds of the body, you do it by the Spirit. And the way you empower the Spirit to work in your life is to fill your life with the truths about God. Now, I know that there are probably some of you in here that are thinking to yourself right now, it's like, Scott, that sounds great. That sounds really good to know that I now have the Holy Spirit, that I can now understand deep truths about God, but I honestly don't understand how that helps my anger problem. I really don't see how that helps my struggle with lust. I really don't see how that helps me overcome selfishness and laziness. How does this actually lead to a real physical transformation of the way that I live? Because it seems kind of detached. My mind and my actions, how do these work together? 
your mind is a very powerful thing. And your mind will drive you to do many things. Any athlete will tell you that there comes a point in your training and in your physical performance where your muscles don't matter anymore. That you just got to, by the power of your mind, push through the pain, push through the hurt and the trauma, and just go. And just keep running. Or just keep swimming. Keep breathing. No matter how much it hurts. Your mind is a powerful thing. What you've got to recognize is that when you fill your minds with the thing of the Spirit in the way that Romans 8 is talking about, that's not just going to be knowledge. You're not just going to become some walking encyclopedia about God. That's not how this works. These deep truths have a transformative effect on your life. Once you've pondered and valued the kindness and the forgiveness and the patience that God has towards you, all of a sudden, you become a lot less angry towards other people that do bad things to you. The patience, the kindness of God that you now have a fuller understanding of. Lust becomes resistible because you've grown to value and to cherish and to treasure the faithfulness and the purity of the Lord. That's what's valuable to you. Selfishness is eradicated in view of God's generosity and his grace towards you. It's a lot harder to be selfish when God has given you so much. It's a lot harder to be selfish when you realize that everything you have is from God himself. Funny story. I wasn't really planning on doing this, but uh, me and I, I debated doing it. I decided not to. Now I'm deciding to do it because it's awesome. So uh, this is an example of how, the tr of how God's truth impacts your life. So my wife and I, many of you know, we are in a situation right now where we are desperately trying to get a house to live in and not live with my parents anymore, and it's been really hard. It's been really difficult to trust the Lord in this situation because it's been many months. And the other day, we were going to look at a house, and we were trying to figure something out, and we were praying in the car. And my wife, in uh, her holy self, uh, prayed, Lord, you have 10,000 cattle on a hill. And so we know that everything is yours and you're in control here. And, you know, that, that impact. And if you're, if you're like me and you're like, what? What does that mean? After we got done praying, I was like, what the heck does that mean? 10,000 cattle on a hill? It's a reference from Scripture that basically everything already belongs to God. And it is the truth, the recognition of that truth that allows us to be patient and to wait and to not be anxious and to not be scared about what's going to happen. It's the truth about God that impacts the way we live. There's a shift in thought that has to happen if you are going to rid yourself of a sinful lifestyle, if you're going to rid yourself from following the course of this world. And that shift in thought goes from you're not just fighting against the sin in your life, you're fighting to have a close relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what it means to fill your minds with things of the Spirit. Seek God. Seek Jesus. Try to know Him more. Try to know Him in a deeper, more impactful, powerful way. And all of a sudden, your fight with sin will start to progress. You'll see that happen because you will be transformed from the inside out. So here's, let's get practical with this with the few minutes that I have left. How do, you, how do you do that? How do you develop a deep, close relationship with Jesus 
where you are filling your mind with the things of the Spirit so that you are then therefore transformed. This is going to sound really easy. It's going to sound really simple. But it's not easy to do. Practically, you fill your mind with things of the Spirit by thinking about things of the Spirit. Pretty simple, huh? The way you cause yourself to think about things of the Spirit is to expose your mind to the things of God. So let me lay out a few very simple things that you can do. Read your Bibles. I know you hear me, you hear Nate say that, you hear preachers say that all the time. Listen, I've never encountered a person that has not taken a season of their life where they have dedicated themselves to studying Scripture and read it consistently and with the purpose of understanding what it means. I've never met a person that has regretted that. I've never met a person that hasn't been changed by that. If you take it upon yourself to devote yourselves to devouring Scripture, studying it, reading it, trying to understand what it means, I guarantee you it will transform your life. It will change you. Beyond reading your Bible, listen to Scripture explained. Listen to sermons. One of the things that I believe was absolutely a catalyst for me when I first became a Christian was that there was this guy in my life who, who was discipling me. And, and almost every week, he led a small group that I was in. Almost every week, he had a new CD for me with John Piper sermons that were recorded to it or burned onto it. I didn't have you know, a smartphone at that time. And so I, he just gave me that CD. He's like, man, I think you'll love these sermons. Go listen to them. And I would put it in my car, and as I would be driving, I would listen to sermons. I would listen to the Word of God explained. I would fill my mind with the things of the Spirit. Get myself thinking about those. While we're talking about you in your car, think very carefully about the kind of music that you listen to and about the reason for which you listen to music. Now look, this isn't the point in the sermon where the preacher looks at you and says, you shouldn't be listening to that devil music because that's not what I'm saying. Okay, I, I love me some good music too. Okay, but think about how often you listen to secular music, not not because of the themes that are present in it, but just because of what you're missing out on by not listening to music that has deep truths of God that are sung and that you listen to. One of the primary ways you can teach your young children about God is singing with them. Teach them songs about Jesus. And that will fill their minds with the things of the Spirit. Think about the music that you listen to. Think about how you spend your time. Look, I'm just going to be honest with you. I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if I learned that, if, if like the normal pattern of your life, and I learned that the normal pattern of your life is that you spend hours and hours and hours and hours a week playing video games and watching TV, I'm not going to be surprised when I learned that there are significant issues of sin in your life. Because all those hours that you spend doing those other things are hours that you do not spend. You're filling your mind in that instance with things of this world. And you're not filling your mind with things of the flesh. You shouldn't be surprised if you find yourself spending the bulk of your time doing worthless things that don't matter. 
fill your mind with the things of the Lord. Instead of watching TV, read good books that are about church history, that are about theology. Read biographies about great Christian men and women that have changed the world. I'm not talking about go sell everything you have and live in a monastery. That's not what this is. It's just filling your life, making it a normal part of your life to study and learn and grow in the things of God, and that will transform your life. Last one I'll say is this. Spend regular time with brothers and sisters in Christ and get this, have spiritual conversations with one another. Here's my challenge to you. Over the next coming weeks, look around the people in this room, invite a family to dinner. Have them over to your house, have a roast, have a cookout while we still have some good weather. And sit down and ask them questions like this. What have you been reading in your Bible lately? What's God been teaching you lately? Now, that question is going to be a little awkward if you haven't been reading your Bible lately or if you feel like God's not teaching you anything lately, but that's an opportunity to have a spiritual conversation. Have spiritual conversation with one another. The whole point behind any of those is this. Just do something to get yourself thinking about God. It sounds so simple. So a lot of times we neglect doing it. But I promise you, you won't be disappointed and it will transform your life. Fill your minds with the things of the Spirit, and then by the power of the Spirit, your mind will be renewed and your life transformed. Pray. God, we so desperately need a transformation from you. We praise you for releasing us from the power of sin and death and judgment, Lord. So God, we ask now for your help to continue that work, to grow in grace, to grow in holiness, Lord. God, I pray that you would continually show us the worthless ways that we use our time, that we spend our lives, that we prioritize. Father, I pray that your word to us would become sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb that we would begin to crave your word to desire your word so that it becomes easier to fill our lives with it pray these things in Jesus name amen so at this point uh, in our service if you're a guest with us or uh, you're new here so I want to just explain this so it's, it's not strange to you we at the end of every sermon, we respond in the same way. We participate in what's called the Lord's Supper, which there are three different stations in this room. There's one right here, there's one right over there, and then there's one at the back of the room. And what we do is uh, we come through the center aisles, or you can go back there, and we take, there's a piece of bread, and we take that piece of bread, we dip it in the juice, and we eat it. This is a meal that we share with one another. And it is designed to remind us about the grace and the mercy of our Lord the bread represents his body that was broken for you. And the blood represents, I'm sorry, it's not blood. The juice represents his blood that was shed for you to pay the penalty for your sin. And as you should be reminded today, to free you from the power of your sin. And so as you come today, come in worship of the Lord with gratitude and thankful heart that he has redeemed you and he has released you and reflect on what it means to now be freed from the power of sin in your life.
This is also a time where normal, regular attenders and members of the church can give financially uh, to the church. That's also an, an aspect of worship that we do as we give of what the Lord gives to us. And so these, these ladies are going to lead us again in singing. When everybody's gone through and we're all back at our seats, we will stand and continue to sing uh, to the Lord. But, but you call as the Lord is, as you come as the Lord is calling you.
second reading this morning is from Titus 3, 3 through 7. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs, heirs according to the hope of eternal life.
guys for leading this worship. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Just have a, a few quick announcements to go through. It's a, all right. <laughs> to go through, and uh, we'll be on our way. Sorry about that little noise there. Um, first is uh, E-Town Aquatic Center. This afternoon, um, our youth will be heading there. Uh, so if you can join us there, that would be great. Uh, what time are we meeting there, Becky? Sounds good. So right there, you heard from Becky. We're going to meet right after service and uh, kind of go from there. Um, next announcement is uh, Friday's Missional Community is going to launch on September 7th. So we're very excited to add another Missional Community. Um, they're going to be uh, starting up. It's uh, Jeremy Burke is going to be leading that. It's going to be at the Burke's house. If you have any questions, uh, please see Jeremy and Cassie. And um, this is also a great opportunity that if you're not in a missional community, get plugged in. Uh, we're all kind of changing directions here in fall. And so uh, it'd be a great time to, to get plugged into a missional community. And uh, lastly, we have the uh, Farmer's Market. Uh, is going to start uh, on is it, oh, August 25th. We're going to actually be having a booth at the Farmer's Market. Um, Leslie Slay is going to be coordinating that. Uh, if you have any questions of how you can help or participate, um, you can ask her, and we will have more information that will be coming out in the newsletter uh, as well on Facebook uh, and all of our social, social media outlets. So stay tuned uh, to all of that great stuff. Um, so I'm going to leave you with this. The benediction for today is Galatians 5:25, And it says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So you guys have a great week, and we look forward to seeing you guys at Missional Community. Have a good one.